This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter delves into a dark era for David Bowie, the months spent in Los Angeles in 1975. He battled his deepest demons in the City of Angels, literally in a sense. He warded off haunting hallucinations and paranoid delusions with the aid of exorcisms and supernatural spells. Famously fortified with a diet of cocaine, milk, and red peppers, he stayed awake for days at a time, driving himself to the brink of madness through malnutrition and sleep deprivation. It was a dangerous period for me, he would admit in later years. I was at the end of my tether physically and emotionally and had serious doubts about my sanity. Somehow, during the depths of his personal hell, he produced the landmark album Station to Station, which many fans rank among the best work he ever made. With just six songs, including the sprawling title track, he redefined not just his sound, but the sound of rock and roll. The album opens with the sound of a steam train, perhaps not coincidentally the vehicle that brought the plane-phobic Bowie to Los Angeles in the spring of 1975. For the first few months of his stay, he lived with his friend Glenn Hughes, a rock icon in his own right. Glenn was in the midst of his tenure as the bass player for Deep Purple, They'd met in Hollywood the previous year when the band was recording their hard rock epic Stormbringer and David was in town for his Diamond Dogs extravaganza. The pair hit it off and stayed in touch. When Bowie moved from New York to L.A. to make his feature film debut in Nick Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth a few months later, he decided to stay with Hughes to keep a low profile. Desperate to escape the messy legal and business fallout from a split with manager Tony DeFreeze, David sought refuge in a friend and certain substances. The excesses of the period have gone down in rock lore. You've heard most of them, I'm sure. Witches exercising pools, phantom falling bodies, Nazi newsreels on loop. Thankfully, both men made it out of the grips of addiction. David decamped to Berlin to break new musical ground with albums like Low and Heroes, which we'll get to soon enough. Glenn Hughes continued to enjoy a remarkable run in Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, the supergroup Black Country Communion, and a host of solo projects. 
Most recently, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer joined the group The Dead Daisies, writing nearly all of the lyrics for their latest album, Holy Ground, which was released in January. In addition to bass duties, he also sings lead on the collection, proving once more, just in case there's any doubt, why they call him the voice of rock. I spoke to Glenn about his new music and his time as David Bowie's housemate back in 1975. I guess to start, I wanted to ask you about the first time you met David Bowie. It was in the summer of 74 when you were in L.A. recording Stormbringer. That's right. How did you first get connected? We were down there, you know, making the album. And um, number one, I didn't know he was in the hotel. And it was a Saturday night. I was having a bit of a party. And uh, his wife showed up, Angie. And she came to me and asked me if I'd like to meet him. So I went upstairs to his suite with uh, myself and Keith Moon and Ronnie Wood, my friends, and I met David for the first time. And as you know, in that period, he was going through his R&B period, and he was all fascinated by black American music, as most of us were back then and still are. And we were, he was fascinated uh, that I was this rock and roll, rock and roll guy that was really into R&B. He had seen the California Jam video concert I did with Deep Purple. And he was taken back that I was such a R&B fanatic. And he was in that world at that time. He was, as you know, forever changing. And that's the thing about David we loved the most. He was never, ever going to stop changing. Yeah, you can say that again. I know, I know you were both big uh, John Lee Hooker fans. Was that an early point of, of connection early on? Yeah, we spoke about all the blues legends and we talked about the soul legends. And we, we were very, very similar in, in, in what we believed was the right thing to do at that period for me as well. I mean, we, that was the night we, we met and we basically went on a long run together. Um, which we can talk about, but but in in general, it's difficult when you actually. It was difficult being in a, in a place with David where he wanted to spend a lot of time with me talking about whatever. So we got a chance to do more uh, uh, meeting up when uh, I went to New York. I spent a lot of time in New York, but in general, I'd say the summer of '74 was when we first made that um, that 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 meeting. What were your first impressions of David in the flesh? Because as you said, you're hanging out with Ronnie Wood and Keith Moon. In what ways was he different than those guys? When you get one-on-one with someone, it doesn't matter if they're they're profile or not. You have to give yourself the opportunity to hear what they're saying and feel what they're saying. And David was a person that liked to make a point. He had so much energy behind everything that all he was concerned about was making the next move on the table for him. That would have been young Americans. You know, he had David live out already. And um, he was really getting ready to, to, to do young Americans. Is there anything that, that you learned from him in that era? I think it was in your memoir where you said that he would tell you, you know, if everyone's going right, go left, you know, go, go with, go yeah. against the grain. Like what, what, how did he, how did he share that with you? How did he show that to you? Well, he knew I was friends with Stevie Wonder, and he knew that I loved Stevie's work. And he, he got me alone one day. He said, listen, Glenn, you should listen or you should 
maybe listen to something else or you know some other artist like he, he always kept on about Nina Simone mm. and but I understood what he was saying because he wanted to go against the grain uh, not such an ego way he he just loved uh, fighting that that his own cause you know and you could never pin David down he was always changing that's the most remarkable thing I've learned about him which is I've taken into my life. Never be afraid to change. The only thing that happens in life are pain and change. And there's been a lot of both of those. Evolution, yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it. One of my my great concert regrets that I never got to see was the, the Diamond Dogs tour. Um, I, I understand you saw it in, um, I, I think, did. September of 74. What was that like to see in I person? Did. I was at the old Universal amphitheater when it was outside and uh, he did five nights i was there for two shows oh it was an uh, uh, incredible truly a master we all know about david a master at his craft completely a master at his craft dave i remember dave sambon on sax uh, mm-hmm. uh, and ava cherry and uh, i hadn't known too much of what he was doing on that particular run until i saw it live and again this is when he was deeply into the R&B connection, which I have always been. And when I saw him on those two occasions at Universal, it was mind-altering. It really was. was The thing with David, he was mysterious. And that's the way I like to keep my life, too. It's being aware of, of, of your surroundings and and having some privacy and and always, you know, turning right instead of turning left. How did it come to pass that David came to live in your house in the in the spring of 1975? Because you were away on tour when he first arrived, right? So he was all by himself. And this is the crazy thing here. This is David Bowie going to travel alone on a train from New York to LA alone. Um, and he wanted me to pick him up at the, at the, uh, at the uh, Grand Central down in L.A. And I, I couldn't beat that because I was actually in, in Bucharest or Paris. So I had the, a guy that was working for me at my house pick him up. And um, when I got home uh, three days later, he was there uh, in my home. Um, I think it's – I spoke about this before. He wanted to – disappear from New York or disappear from the people he was working with, if you will, or uh, how can I say, Tony DeFries, he wanted to distance himself from from, from the business aspect. And he he, uh, he, he wanted to come and, and stay at my house. Uh, and we kept uh, we kept uh, an agreement that no one would know. Uh, no media or no, no friends would know he was coming out. So when I got home there, uh, after being in Paris, I was three days late to that party, and he was there waiting. And uh, we uh, we had some great, great, great times together. Yeah, I was going to ask, what was a typical day like for you? What would you like to do together? Well, we didn't sleep a lot. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we, I mean, uh, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to. Grandiose. I'm not going to, you know, set the benchmark for being grandiose with, with drug behavior. Um, let's just say we were we were both uh, enabling each other, if you will. Um, it was the two of us. 
Um, we did um, burn the candles, but we did get a lot of work done as far as, you know, uh, bits and pieces of music. Uh, he was totally full blown into the Third Reich. He was fascinated by the World War One and World War Two, <clears throat> and he would watch videos and all kinds of stuff in my home. But the fascinating part about David's stay at my house was this is where he came up with the album Station to Station, and I was privy to see that at work in front of my very eyes. Oh, that is one of my all-time favorite albums. I mean, what was his creative process like around this time? Was he still doing the William Burroughs kind of cut and, and paste for yes, his lyrics? he was absolutely doing that. He was, and that was new to me, and it took me a while to realize what, what is it. He never really told me until one, one day I, I said, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> and he walked me through it, you know. So, again, he was pressing another button, wasn't he? That album was completely off-kilter for I thought it was a wonderful piece of music but again he was showing me kind of laying a blueprint out for me really I mean about what I should do I mean I was in Deep Purple as you know a great big rock band uh, I mean a hard rock band and um, I, I, I was questioning if, if that's where I wanted to stay and um, I've been everybody knows I'm, I've always been a black American soul nut can't help myself. That's the way I was raised. And what David was doing now on Station the Station was, was far different to what was going on in Young Americans. And again, this is the thing that intrigued me about him. He wasn't frightened to delve into something new. And I think of your first solo album, I think of Play Me Out. I mean, that's got a lot of soul and, and, and funk influences on it too, I feel like. Yes, he was, yes, he, he was going to produce that, but he was, that time he was, he was going to <clears throat> with Iggy to Berlin, so that didn't happen. But uh, we were thinking about playing me out with David producing it, and I was definitely in that mindset. As you can hear, the album is unlike anything I've ever done before. It's a complete orchestrated background singers, uh, deep funk and soul, and it's a. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a tip of the hat towards David, but it's definitely. It gave me a lot of confidence to do my own work like that. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you keep in touch with David after he moved out of your house and in with Michael Lippman and eventually into his own place in, in L.A.? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I spent some time with David Um And also when he went to back to the U.K. with, with Iggy and, and, the, and the, the sales brothers. Um, yeah, I mean, we kept in touch for a while and um, it was an interesting, you know the story, David always changed with the weather, you know, and it was, uh, it was uh, different with David. But if, if you're really close to him, he kept in touch with you. I know those those times. I mean, he's he's mentioned. I think you said too. It was kind of a a, a, a dark time for him in the mid seventies, and and also for you. But you came out the other side of those kind of scary times. Uh, I did getting sober in nineteen ninety seven. What, what? Where did you find the strength? What got you out of it? Um, <clears throat> being sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> it, it wasn't. I didn't get sober for a girl, or I, I got sober because I knew that. I couldn't survive. There was a point where, you know, I kept asking my higher power for help and he was busy, obviously, and he didn't get to me on Christmas, until Christmas Day, 1991. And um, I had that breakthrough moment where I, I had someone drive me to the hospital and, uh, and check me in. It was something that I, I needed to do for myself. Um, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was so paranoid, but I knew it was going to take me if I didn't surrender. And that's what I did. 
and you are healthy today and busier than ever. You just released your first full-length LP with the Dead Daisies, who you joined in, in 2019. How did you first link up with these guys? Because I know you go pretty far back with Doug Aldridge. Yeah, I mean, Doug was in my band in 2015. Um, and then, you know, I've been so busy. Um, about 18 months ago, I got a call from Dead Daisies management. If I'd like to meet with David Lowy, uh, who lives in New York, and he flew out to meet me in LA. We had dinner at the Sunset Marquee. We had a, you know, a, an exchange of words about what they wanted to do moving forward with their own brand. And would I like to be involved with it? And would I bring some songs with me? And I said, sure. And my only concern was I need to be friendly with all these people. I got to be really honest. At this point in my career, I got to be uh, really part of a brotherhood and that's and that's what we have uh, accomplished i was gonna say working solo for a number of years now how was it adapting back into sort of a band mentality was that a big mental leap for you or it wasn't so easy actually um because i have been running my own thing for so long it, it was one step at a time remember this album was recorded right before covid recorded november december 19 so and in France, which is a wonderful place to, in Saint-Rémy, uh, in uh, the south of France, the La Fabrique Studios, a, a huge chateau, uh, a, a remarkable place to make music and to, uh, you know, uh, prepare some songs. There was an interview you gave recently where you said that a lot of your songs, almost all your songs start on acoustic guitar, which surprised yeah. me. Even the, the hard rocking ones start from this comparatively yeah. delicate place. What is it about starting on acoustic guitar that really works for you? Does it allow you to, to see, hear the dynamics more clearly, or what is it? I think for a time in my life, I, I was writing on electric guitar. Excuse me. And then the last few albums, I, I wanted to, to write acoustically because if you can create a song acoustically, you can really hear everything that you need to hear. There's no effects on the guitar. There's no nothing. And I've written some very heavy songs on the Black Country album on acoustic guitar. So for me, the acoustic has been my friend. Really, I've been a really close friend. I I love so much of the album. I love the track like no other. Uh, Thank you. You... You cut that one live, right? You cut a lot of these tracks live. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a Pro Tools guy. Um, I've been making records a long, long, long time. And let's just say in the 90s, I did a few things that, that didn't sound right for me. And then, you know, sort of early 2000s, I started to say, I'm going to go back to making, you know, especially on Soul Mover, which when my, my dear friend Chad Smith, we, we, we went in and cut that live. And, I've been doing that with Black Country and all the solo albums I've done since then. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. 
No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I I have to ask you, as a passionate amateur bassist, I'd never forgive myself if I don't. How do you get that bass tone? What do you use? (laughs) Oh, you know, and this is a good question. Off the top of my head, the obvious answer for me is it's in the fingers. Mm. Um, it's first of all, it's in the soul, and then it, it passes through. It's in the fingers. I think it's in the way certain people play instruments, whether it's uh, the way John Bonham held a drumstick, you know, or you know, so certain soccer players kick a ball. It's it's a acclamation of the single clarity of a tone, or like Wyoming's oh, got that tone. Um, and for me. I I got a lot of bases and I can pick any any of them up and you wouldn't even know there's a difference. <laughs> but I, I guess I guess I truly am a man that loves to play bass guitar and people basically know me as the singer. But and a lot of people don't. Well, not a lot of people, but people don't know I play bass. Now they're starting to realise I do, and they're going, "Hang on a minute." Have you heard like no other? And like, it's just a, it's just a piece of Glen. It's just what I do. Now you're you're mostly a pick a plectum guy, right? As opposed to a, a finger style player. And I'll tell you why. Um, 
when I joined the Vancouver Finders Keepers when I was 17, I got a call on a Wednesday night. I was playing guitar in another band. And on Friday night, they wanted me to join. And I had two days to learn the songs. And two days? For me, yeah. Wow. And, and I couldn't play with my fingers because you have to learn how to do that. So, but the, what I need you to know is, and anybody hearing this, I think with my fingers and I sound like I'm playing a pick. I've learned from the greatest bass players in the world, from the, the people that don't use a pick, uh, you know, the greatest bass players. And I've learned from them what not to play. You know, mm. uh, it's important for me not to, oh, listen, I do rage on the bass, so I like the water. But if you listen to the work I've done in any band I've ever been in, there's a lot, a lot of holes and spaces. And um, I really am in love with playing bass again. I think pretty obvious if you if you hear what I'm doing now you can see I'm having a lot of fun a lot of fun and and and, lo and long may that continue absolutely and I hope we can get out there and, and see you having fun very soon how have you Me been too. doing in the past year or so have you been adapting staying healthy and happy have you been writing a lot I've been writing a lot I've wrote a whole bunch of new material um, I have a studio here. Uh, let's just say six months of last year was locked in my studio, preparing some new work. Um, and that's ongoing. Uh, I have been blessed to be a songwriter. In the 70s and 80s, okay, I, I had some success as a writer, but when I got sober in the early 90s, that all changed for me because I started to think about the human condition and walking through the fear and letting go, those things for me are so important. Is there something, since you got sober, that is the most important thing that you've learned since then, something that you would like to, to, to pass along to, to fans and listeners? You can't live in the past. It's, there's some wonderful memories I've got, and some indifferent and crazy memories, but I can't go there because it can't be redone. And if I go into the future, that's a dangerous topic because you just don't know. And the only place I'm going to be is totally here in this month. Now, it's taken me lifetime to talk like this, a lifetime to understand about the present moment. And it's very basic to me, very, very basic. If I'm either in the past or the future, um, I just got to remember, come on now, you're not there, just stay here. And if I stay here in the present, then I'm going to have a, a, good, a good time. Makes you a happier person and probably makes you a better musician too, just being there and hearing what's happening in that exact moment and how to respond to it. Oh, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> the last, these new songs I've, I've written of late are all about that. Actually, Holy Ground, the album I wrote the lyrics to, is about the same subjects as well. So I think for the rest of my career, if I can say this, I, that's what I'm going to be singing about. I don't like to sing too much about fiction. I like to talk about stuff that we're all going through and to be a healer, if you will. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.